In the book, God and the Doc, which is a collection of essays, theological essays, uh, by C.S. Lewis, in one of the chapters, he writes about miracles. And he writes these words. I've known only one person in my life who claimed to have seen a ghost. It was a woman. And the interesting thing is that she disbelieved in the immortality of the soul before seeing the ghost and still disbelieves after having seen it. She thinks it was a hallucination. In other words, seeing is not believing. This is the first thing to get clear in talking about miracles. Whatever experiences we may have, we shall not regard them as miraculous if we already hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural. Lewis is saying that if the supernatural or the miraculous does not exist in one's thinking, if that category is an impossibility to a person, there may be no amount of reason, no amount of evidence, no personal experience that might convince the person otherwise. Something has to break through. A new category has to be created. Well, here we've come to the last chapter in Matthew's Gospel, marching through now to chapter 28, and we come to a miracle. It's a miracle that many people were convinced did occur. And it's the miracle that more than any other miracle motivated the faith and the worship of the apostles and the early church. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I want us to simply see how the resurrection is surprising in some surprising ways, how it is personal, and how it is wonderful. So Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to God's word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, look, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Have you ever heard the saying, Motivate the mind, and the body will follow? I used to have a running t shirt fitting for exercise. Motivate the mind, the body will follow. Well, there's not only truth in that idea and in that saying, but the reason that nearly all of the apostles would end up giving their lives for the Christian faith, becoming martyrs for Christ, is because they were motivated. They were convinced. 
they were inspired, convicted that indeed Jesus had been risen from the dead. That's what motivated them the most. It wasn't a new idea. It wasn't a new concept, a new way of living. That might be included, but it was an event. Something happened. It was the resurrection of Christ. More than anything else, this was the centerpiece of their gospel proclamation, along with the cross, and they would not stop talking about it. It's evidenced through the early chapters and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he said, Men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the plan of God, you crucified and killed, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, as uh, we have a description of the preaching ministry, it says, uh, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When Paul was summarizing the gospel message to the younger pastor Timothy, he said to him, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in my gospel. The gospel was good news, not first because it was opening up a new ethic or a new morality. It was good news because this crucified Lord had been risen from the dead. And they were convinced. Perhaps most striking is the fact that throughout the New Testament, whether it's the preaching of the apostles through the book of Acts or it's the letters to the churches, the authors do not argue for the evidence or the reasonableness of the resurrection. They assume it as a fact of history. Paul Barnett, the Christian historian, says it's striking that the letters of the mission leaders, James, Peter, John, and Paul, never argue for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. The writers assume that the readers accept its reality as well-established and not in contention. It's really marvelous. First Corinthians 15 comes to mind where Paul's seemingly convincing the church in Corinth of the concept of resurrection and, and indeed the, the resurrection of Christ outside of there, there. There's an assumption that indeed this event has occurred. This is not to say there isn't evidence for the resurrection. We're going to look at some internal evidence from the text that we've read in Matthew chapter 28 here. Nor is it to say there aren't reasons to believe in the resurrection. Rather, it is to say that for the eyewitnesses, this was not an idea to argue for. It was a fact for them to proclaim You know, facts can be inconvenient sometimes. Facts can be irritating. Facts can be life-transforming. They can be frustrating because facts do not ask for your opinion. They're not swayed by your preference. If I drop this pen in my hand, we might have an opinion about it. We might have a preference in what what it might do, but it's not going to stop the fact that when I drop it, it's going to fall. That's a fact. And that's the kind of way that the apostles and the, the gospel accounts treat the resurrection. It's an event. It's a fact. This is a struggle for our culture. 
a society in which personal opinion and personal perspective seems to reign supreme. We, people want to express their likes and their dislikes. Isn't that Facebook? I'm not on Facebook, but that's what I hear. I like this. I don't like this. But the resurrection comes not asking for opinions or perspectives or preferences. It's like a rock dropped into water. It's a fact, and it starts creating a ripple, and it starts creating a wave. And that's what happened in the early church. The first thing to see in this resurrection account is how it is surprising. But it is surprising in some surprising ways. In verse 1, we're told that after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. The Jewish Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, and it ended at sundown on Saturday. And here it seems to me we may have a first surprise about the resurrection, about the centerpiece of the gospel proclamation and message. It doesn't happen on the Sabbath. It doesn't happen in holy time. God was doing something new. It's at dawn on the first day of the week. As the prophets had said, like the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I will do a new thing. And everything begins shifting as a focus to Sunday. This is why we gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day Jesus was raised from the dead. Fellowship happens on Sunday now. Worship happens on Sunday. What one person called the eighth day of creation. This is a day of new creation. A day of new life. And I think if Paul reminded Timothy in one of his letters to him, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, it's because he could forget, in a sense. We can forget of the significance of the resurrection. It, it no longer has that kind of grip on us. That Christ indeed is living. He has overcome death. He is reigning supreme. But there's more surprises at the resurrection. Perhaps you noticed, like the circumstances that surrounded the crucifixion, we also here have at the resurrection some extraordinary occurrences. The women, they come to see the tomb in verse 2. Behold, there's a great earthquake. We saw that at the crucifixion, a quaking of the earth. An angel descends from heaven, rolls back the stone, sits upon it. His appearance like lightning, his clothes white as snow. These extraordinary things. But the surprising thing is not just how extraordinary the occurrences and circumstances are, but rather the emphasis in all of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in how these things are seen with very human, ordinary eyes. In other words, the gospel writers are not seeking to tell the stuff of legend, but the stuff of eyewitness accounts. And the way Matthew does this is by emphasizing the verb seeing, to see. Six different times in these ten verses, I'll mention a few of them. Mary, she went to see the tomb. In verse 6, the angel says, he's not here, he's risen, come, look, see the place where he lay. 
In verse 7, the angel says, go tell the disciples he's going to Galilee. There you will see him. If you turn to John's account of the resurrection, which it's worth doing in John chapter 20, after the women go and tell the disciples, Peter and John, you may recall, run to the tomb. Apparently John was faster. We're told that John outran Peter. But when Peter came to the tomb, he entered in, and it says that he saw. And what did he see? He saw the linen cloths, and then it says he saw the face cloth of Jesus folded up and set aside. And the word here for he saw is not the typical word that's used for seeing. It's the Greek word theore. It's where we get theorize or reason. In other words, when Peter looked into the tomb, he theorized, he reasoned, he perceived, and he considered. They're wrestling with this. They're trying to understand what has happened. Perhaps Peter thought to himself, if grave thieves had taken the body... Why would they leave the linen cloths, the face cloth, the spices, these things of of worth and value? On the other hand, if other disciples had taken the body, why would they dishonor the body by removing the the cloths? Peter's reasoning, he's thinking. And I mention this because while the Christian faith is more than reasoning, it's not less than reasoning. The apostles were looking for evidence. We remember doubting Thomas in John chapter 20 after the resurrection has occurred. He had not yet seen the Lord. John 20 verse 25, the disciples said to him, we've seen the Lord. And what does Thomas say? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger in his side, I will never believe. And we're told days later, Jesus came to Doubting Thomas. And he said, put your hand and place it in my side. Put your finger here. See my hands. Don't disbelieve. Believe. They were looking. They were trying to understand. And they were convinced. Why did Peter and John and Thomas and the apostles risk martyrdom for the claims of Christ? Why did Paul convert from Judaism to Christianity to be subject to severe pain and suffering and persecution except that they believed they had seen the risen Christ? They were convinced. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, that Jesus appeared to Peter and the twelve and then to 500 brothers all at one time. Which leads to the next surprise the testimony of Mary Magdalene. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus was a strident opponent to Christianity. And one of his attacks was on the testimony of Mary Magdalene. He wrote these words, How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical woman? Ouch. Now, Celsus could get away with that in the first and second century because 
he was living in a time in which the status of women in society was very low. And therefore, their testimony often dismissed. His attack made sense at the time. You might even say you would expect that kind of attack. And yet all four gospel accounts, amazingly, emphasize Mary Magdalene and the other women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You would want to ask the question, if one were inventing stories of resurrection in the first century, why would women in every case be the first eyewitnesses? Except that it's true. That they did see, they did touch, they did hear. They heard him say, greetings. And they took hold of his feet. You know, perhaps the greatest surprise is what we read in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now you and I, if you're a professing believer, might think, of course, Jesus is to be worshipped. But if you're a Jew living in the first century, you are the last person and the last people in all the earth to worship a man. It did not fit their theological categories. It didn't fit their worldview. The name of God was so holy, they shuddered to even utter his name. Even today, Jews will write God with simply G-D, leaving out the O, to revere the name. And yet, over this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection, the following week, Mary, the other women, the apostles, and hundreds begin to worship. They begin to worship this man. As Thomas felt his side, touched his hands, and said, Behold, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. It is surprising, in some surprising ways. But the resurrection is also personal. How does Jesus reveal his victory over death? His vindication as the Son of God and the Son of Man? But by drawing near and revealing himself in a very personal way to his followers. You think about Mary Magdalene. Throughout the uh, gospel stories, she is an admirable character. In Luke chapter 8, we're told that as Jesus traveled through the villages and cities, ministering along with the twelve, that some women accompanied him in his ministry, including Mary Magdalene. She was the one present at the crucifixion when the disciples had fled. She was the one present at at Jesus' burial. She's been there. She's shown herself to be a devoted and passionate follower of Christ. But why does she go to the tomb on the dawn of Sunday? Why does she go? It's not to greet a risen Savior. She's not expecting this. It is to anoint the body of her crucified and dead Lord. Matthew simply tells us that they went to see the tomb, perhaps to pay respects. Other gospel accounts tell us they go with spices to properly anoint the body. 
But she's going not because she believes in a Christ who will be resurrected. She's going to witness and anoint a dead master. Back in John 20, when she sees the stone rolled back, she runs to tell the others. She says they've taken the body of the Lord. And when they all return to the tomb, and Peter and John are inquiring, we're told in John 20, verse 11, Mary, she stood outside the tomb, weeping. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, saying, They've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Mary, just like the rest, did not have the worldview, did not have the category to believe in a Savior resurrected from the dead. Yes, resurrection at the end of history. The Jews believed in that. But not a resurrection by one man in the middle of history. Even though perhaps she, like the disciples, had heard Jesus say through his ministry, I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Four times we've, we've heard Jesus announce his necessary crucifixion and resurrection on the third day through Matthew. But this, this is not what she's expecting. One author put it this way, Jesus wanted Mary to recognize that grand as her devotion was to, to him, her estimate of him was still far too small. At times, no matter how great our devotion is to the Lord, how committed we may be, perhaps often our estimate of Jesus may be far too small. We might think, God could never change the heart of that person. God cannot use me effectively in the conversion of the lost. God could never restore that relationship. And you know, from a human perspective, that's true. Humanly speaking, faith, belief in the risen Christ is impossible. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It requires Jesus to break through and reveal himself personally. Without that, faith is impossible. And yet, that's what we see him doing at the resurrection scene. Mary, she's weeping outside the tomb. In John's gospel, it says she turns around, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And Jesus begins to speak to her. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? You see the gentleness of Christ? That's how he reveals himself. Mary says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Jesus said to her, Mary. He calls her by name, Mary. And it's then that she recognizes who he is. She recognizes his voice, recognizes his character, and she says, Rabboni, teacher. Matthew captures it in one verse, verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, they came, and they took hold of his feet. You remember our Lord's words in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. They hear me and they follow after me. Here Jesus, he comes gently, he comes personally, 
He reveals his presence. He reveals his life to his own. The resurrection is surprising. It is personal. And it is also wonderful. In some ways, Mary meeting the risen Christ really captures the heart of the whole biblical story. For one, God in Christ must reveal himself personally for faith to be born and to give life. There is so much in our lives. It could be our thinking and reasoning, our upbringing, our trials, our education. These things that can shrink Jesus down to someone whose power is very small. Whose presence is very small. Whose ability is very small. Left to ourselves, the person of Christ becomes very manageable, very limited. It requires Jesus to break through into a person's heart and mind. To make his immeasurable power and his immeasurable grace, his deep and wide love known. Maybe more significant, though, is the fact that the Lord's encounter with Mary tells us that Christ redeems by grace. Mary is the first person among the first people in history to have met the risen Christ and then to hear those words, go and tell the disciples he's risen from the dead. Do we know, do we remember who Mary used to be? This is a woman with a past. Luke 8, verse 2 and 3 tells us that she was one who had seven demons cast out of her. This was a person, demon-possessed. Whatever we might think of that, she was certainly an outcast of society. This is a person who had a conflicted mind and heart, a person who heard voices, a person who cried out in anguish. An outcast. And yet she would be, this woman, an outcast among the first to make known the risen Lord. That's the grace of Jesus Christ displayed. Who he makes himself known to and who he uses for his glorious purposes. How does he reveal himself to Mary and the disciples? He says in verse 9, greetings. It is his word, it is his voice by which he reveals himself. As we heard in John's gospel, he simply says Mary. First name, personal address. We can insert our own name there. That's when wonder and reverence and joy and worship begins for the people of God, for Mary, for the disciples, for the church. Mary. When Jesus calls us by name, that's when we begin to see what our lives were meant for, what his purpose is for us. The author Annie Dillard, in one of her books, wrote these words. She said, I had been my whole life a bell and never knew it until at that moment I was, I was lifted up and struck. That's what God in Christ does to people's lives. It's not just revealing himself to people, but revealing to people who they are to be in him. I now know who I am. And that's what God in Christ is doing. He's striking the bells of human lives. 
And that is what leads to a life of worship and great joy, life and fellowship with him. The resurrection is wonderful. It reminds us that my 30 years or 50 years or 70 years or 90 years on this earth is not the totality of my life. The resurrection brings that to light. It is to fill us with tremendous hope, anticipation, confidence of what is coming. The resurrection reminds us our God is living. Our Savior is, has overcome the grave. He's living. He's watchful over his people. He continues to intercede for us. He's ministering by his spirit. And the resurrection proves all that Jesus has said is true. As we rest in his word, as we take his word into our lives, we can count on it. He's risen from the dead. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for the wonder of your word, how you have so beautifully revealed uh, these events to us, your people. We pray that they would fill our minds, they would sink down into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would do that kind of work that we cannot do ourselves, that you would fill us with hope, fill us with joy, fill us with new life, we would hear those words in Colossians. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would um, sanctify us, that we would experience new seasons of newness of life in holiness, new, newness of life in experiencing your uh, indwelling presence by the Holy Spirit. Newness of life and fellowship as the people of God. But Lord, we come to you because this is a work that you do. And we rest in your hands. We thank you that you have made known to us and called us with that voice, that word that saves. And we pray all this with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.